Welcome to the Next Level American Dream podcast, brought to you by Thompson Multifamily Group. Your hosts, Abigail and Sean, will discuss how you can take your American dream to the next level through real estate investing, business practices, and personal development. Join us as we share our experiences as a father-daughter duo who are trying to accomplish their goal of financial freedom. We hope you learn more about how to define and achieve your American dream. Here's another episode of Next Level American Dream. Welcome to the Next Level American Dream podcast. We have a wonderful guest for you today, but first, please make sure you have subscribed if you have not already. We also love getting your feedback through likes, comments, ratings, and reviews. Today, Sean has a conversation with TJ Kosen. TJ is the founder of Sherlock Houses and Platinum Real Estate Mastermind has acquired many multifamily properties and is now mainly focusing on single-family wholesaling. Today, Sean and TJ discuss the challenges of wholesaling in single-family, the importance of knowing who the end buyer is, and the primary focus of his business, Sherlock Houses. If you found any value from today's episode, then please share it with a friend and help us grow. For more information on our sponsor, visit thompsonmultifamilygroup.com to start taking your American dream to the next level through passive investing. Welcome, TJ. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm doing great. Good, good. Well, let's start by just share with the people kind of your background, where you came from, and then kind of what you have going on today. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's see. Let's do the short story. Go. So I started in real estate in 2006, a little while ago. Not the best time to get started, to be honest with you. My first deal was actually 112 apartment units in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a kind of a C, kind of a C neighborhood. So my second deal, not to be overdone, 98 units. So that was way back in the day. People always ask me what I learned from that, I guess. What I learned from that is just don't buy multifamily in a C neighborhood in 2006 because they didn't they didn't go as expected. And we ended up selling one and actually short selling another one in like 2010 to 11. So that's, that's how I got started in real estate. And I wouldn't recommend that. So after that, flipped a bunch of houses in California, came out, moved out to Dallas. We've been out here, my wife and I, about seven years. And we focus on, actually we focus on a bunch of different stuff. So we focus on a lot of flips. We do about 30% probably flips, probably about 30% wholesales, and probably about 30% wholesales. We're kind of upping the wholesale volume a little bit. What else do we do? We have some, we have a bunch of rentals. We have uh, self-storage. So stay pretty active, build out a team. So did the whole business development team building thing and just, just loving it. So that's the short story. And we can dig into any kind of pieces of that that makes sense, I guess. Well, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm focused on multifamily. So if you, if you can, let's rewind maybe a little bit to that. I know it's a sure. failure of yours, but cause so you, you started in multifamily and you transitioned out of that because I guess you had a bad experience and, and decided to do single family. Is that how that went? Yeah, more or less. It was, uh, it was more of the market timing thing. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily even consider the projects themselves a failure. The first one, the 112 unit was a huge value add property. And just such a completely different market dynamic in kind of 2006 than what we have now yeah. that it's, uh, it's kind of odd. We bought, uh, I think we bought it for about somewhere around $8,000 a unit price point. We intended to capitalize at about $15,000 a unit. And at the time it was worth probably about 30 to $33,000 a unit. So definitely a different market right now. I'm not even sure what that property would be worth per unit. I, I need to look it up. And so, I mean, so the math made a lot of sense. The only thing, and that's about what we hit, actually. That's about what we hit. We obviously hit the purchase price correctly. We hit the uh, capitalization per unit pretty much spot on. A couple of overages on some units that were really bad, a couple of, un, you know, kind of under things on other units. 
And then we leased it up pretty substantially. So when we bought it, the first one, we bought it at about 10% occupied. And at the peak, I think we were, we were, I think we were 92% occupied of available units kind of at the, at the operational peak. And I think we got it up to about, I'm not sure, 90, uh, no, not 90, about 85% occupied once we finished up the rehab. And we finished up the rehab right at the right at the top of the market, right at 2008. Uh-huh. So that was fun. The kind of failure aspect financially, I guess speaking, was we saw a drop in gross collections over a six-month period of about 25 to 30%. So that definitely put us in a position that just kind of wasn't fun on that property. That's the one that we, actually, that's the one we cashed out on. So that was a lot of cash kind of in the capitalization thing. We did not short sell it. We had a private lender. Actually, the lending thing was really cool. This is something that people can absolutely use in their current business. So we bought it with a assuming a note from a private lender who was basically a correspondent lender from a local community bank. And so technically it was hard money or private money, I guess, but he was only, he was only like a point and a half, two points above prime. So our interest rate wasn't catastrophic. And then I negotiated a $200,000 second with the seller because he bought it from a, I think he bought it from a either foreclosure or short sale auction. Well, not auction, but either either directly from the bank or from a short sale. I don't remember. I think it was a foreclosure. Anyway, so I, I made him hold the $200,000 second and his contribution to earn his like kind of payday, I guess. As he secured the property, he evicted most of the unpaying tenants. He cleaned it up and just boarded up vacant units. So it was definitely kind of see, like we knew what we were getting into. We we definitely had a blank slate to deal with. And he, I, he wholetailed it, didn't he? Shit, he wholetailed it to me. So yeah. the same thing that I do with all these houses that I buy, wholetailed it to us. So it turned out pretty good, like from, from that perspective. Like I said, the, the kind of crappy part was about a six to eight month period in 2008 to nine. I think it was fall 08 to like spring 2009 when we just saw about a, about a 30% decrease in gross collected income. And obviously we weren't highly leveraged on it, but that definitely affects kind of the valuation of the property. And I don't know, other stuff going on. We we sold that one, cashed out, and uh, went back to San Diego, surfed a little bit, kind of licked my wounds because we definitely lost lost a lot of the kind of upfront cash and started buying and selling houses. And that's a that's a fantastic business. So I so guess you- kind of kind of by necessity, necessity, I got into single family. I always considered myself kind of more of a multifamily guy. My first flip was actually in Memphis. It scared the crap out of me because when you're capitalizing 112 units, it's easy. You're buying hundreds of gallons of all the same color paint, you know, we were buying each property had, shoot, I don't know, each unit had eight doors, something like that. You know, you got a front and a back and a bedroom. So there's four and a bathroom, five and then closets, six, seven, eight. Yeah. Like eight to 12 doors. So you're just buying the crap out of all that stuff. And I thought it was almost more straightforward than a flip because you buy a flip. It's like, well, I don't know what color do I paint it? Like, I don't know. Let's see what the neighbor painted their colors. Uh, Well, what kind of tile do I put in? I don't know. Let's look around and it was really, it was really kind of interesting. So maybe one of the biggest takeaways I learned from it is in our flipping and our kind of wholesale business, we almost take a multifamily volume rehab approach to how we do it. So we do quite, I think we have four or five flips going right now. Um, and they're all the same. They're all yeah. the same. You and, you and I were talking ahead of time where it honestly gets kind of boring and transactional where you're just, you're going in doing the same thing on all of them. So we take that approach. We take kind of the multifamily rehab approach to our single family flips. And strangely enough, our, what do you call them? Our rentals also look exactly the same. They're all yeah. the same color, all the same tile, all that stuff. So we take a lot of the lessons that I learned and apply it to our business now. And it goes really, it goes really well. So you've taken the multifamily scale of rehab and, and, and brought it down to your single family. 
If yeah, it's okay, so. if I'm, I'm going to rewind you a little bit on the, so you didn't actually, I, I called it a failure. I'm sorry, but it wasn't really a technically a failure. You just had a market downturn where your collections went down, but you were still able to sell that property out even, even in a time period that was probably the worst time to sell. Yeah. And, and you still did okay. You didn't, you know, you, you didn't do um, poorly on it. You still, you still survived that, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we lost, we lost money on it. So financially it wasn't, it wasn't okay. definitely a success, but we you know, had enough money to kind of keep going. The, when, when we so bought it, why wouldn't you hold it, on to it at that point? This, I think the second property was dragging us down. Uh-huh. Uh, the second one, we actually, the 98 units was more of a semi-stabilized thing, but in a, if, if this property is maybe C plus, that one was maybe C minus. And that one operationally, the drop in income, I think was more. So that one we ended up short selling just because it's, it made sense at the time. And in, in our opinion of it, we bought it for what we thought was a great price. And the guy that actually, funny enough, I think the guy that bought it from us actually lost money on it too. So I mean that kind of sucks. And currently, so, but here's how, here's what's definitely different about that market in Memphis. The second property, we bought it for 1.3. We short sold it obviously for less than that. And it currently traded with 16, 98 units currently traded for with 16 fewer units than it had when we owned it because there's a big catastrophic fire for something like 2.2. So just recently, just recently and hundred percent vacant. So it's definitely a different market. Yeah. From, from, from back then for sure. Well, let's talk about, so your, your business today, you, you focus a lot on market analysis. What, what sort of, tell us a little bit about that and then kind of maybe some tools that you're using and how that kind of works in your business. Yeah, so we do we do a pretty decent volume of of flips, and but we still take kind of the deal flow process as an individualized thing. So I, I don't I'm not one of these guys where I have any desire really to build up to 20, 30 wholesale deals a month because I think that becomes just kind of an operational headache. I'm happy doing the volume that we're doing. So we still take it almost like a deal by deal analytic basis. So we, for example, we'll take a property in Arlington, Texas, which is a great suburb in DFW. And we'll say, you know, for this property, maybe we want to hit this price point. So if the full ARV is maybe say $250,000, depending on where we bought it at, full ARV means we're going to have to dump a lot of money into it. So maybe we shoot for a ARV price point less than that, maybe 220, 225, but we compensate by doing a a lesser scope of work to the property. So that's kind of how we, we take that and look at it. It's probably one of the biggest questions I get when newer investors are asking, like, hey, this wholesale thing, how does this work? How do you do it? And th- that's how we approach it, where we repair properties, either wholesale or flip, to basically hit the price point that we want to hit, and then price it generally competitively to get moved one way or the other. So that's that's the, like, on a, on a micro level, kind of how we look at a small market like Arlington. Okay, what's a, what's a comparable property for the price point that we're trying to hit here? And what do we have to do to meet that? And then obviously on just on a macro level, it's kind of a fantastic business model in real estate right now in the single family space where everyone knows retail is definitely going up because of just a a lot of different reasons. The wholesale prices are kind of going up, maybe at a little bit of an accelerated rate, but this middle ground where the wholesale kind of like retail, retail listed, but still in need of some work. So what we would have called maybe seven, eight years ago, like a handyman special on the MLS I think the, the acceleration and that price point has kind of gone up a little bit faster than either one of those other ones, where it's really compressing the difference between kind of a fixer-up property and a all, all, all the way fixed-up property. So for us, it's fantastic. We have the capacity to take down uh, a lot of properties, and we have the crews to 
rehab the ones we want to rehab and then analyze the market in where the other properties are at and do maybe a maybe a 25% rehab or a 30% rehab or a, you know 50% rehab instead of spending on every single property instead of spending I don't know 30 minimum 60,000 if uh, it's comprehensive we just had one that went from 45 to 60,000 projected but we looked at but we but on that particular property we looked at the comps and we're like you know if we do these extra things if we do a new fence a new roof and a new HVAC system will actually increase the ARV price by a lot. So let's just blow it out because we're doing all the rest of the stuff. So that's where I really take kind of a, and the company takes really a, an individual unit by unit approach to at least the, at least the single stuff, single family stuff that we do say, well, what do we do to this deal to optimize, optimize this deal for us? Yeah. So I, I come from single family too, as you know, and that's, that's what I used to do is look at, look at what the, market was sort of tolerating on the retail side. Mm -hmm. And you'll, you, what you'll find is there's a lot of times there's investors that come in and they just blow the house out and they're just doing all this, you know, the, the nicest stuff and it's, they're getting the maximum ARV, but the people that are selling their house in the neighborhood that have lived there for 10 years or something, mm -hmm. they're not, they're not putting in all new appliances and countertops and right. all these other things. And they're still selling their, their house. Right. And, and they might not be selling for full ARV up here, right. but they're not doing, they're not doing a $35,000 renovation to get up there. Right. Exactly. Which, so you can take a, you can take an existing sort of distressed property, kind uh -huh. of get it to a level where someone would have sold it if they'd lived in it for the last 10 years or so, and you can mm -hmm. still sell it for a pretty decent amount. And someone, in, someone buying that house can buy a house that's, that you can come in and live in. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have all the latest stainless steel appliances or granite countertops, but it's still a nice house that they can live in. And it's more affordable than the ones the investors are maybe selling at, at top yeah. retail. Oh, absolutely. There's and a it's, it's, really good it's middle fantastic. ground. fantastic. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic little niche right in there where the benefit to the marketplace is obviously all the, all the benefits that we offer to sellers anyhow, where they need the closing and the, you know, whatever the issue is with the house. But the benefit to the end buyer really is, oh, you want, if you want to live in this neighborhood, you know, 250 for a fully blown out house in a competitive market, that might be a little tough. But as long as the property itself is financeable, generally conventionally, generally not FHA because you're not usually holding these things 90 days, as long as the property is conventionally financeable. So I guess what that means is no, like no massive holes in the walls, toilets are working, plumbing's working, the systems are operational. Then you can have a family come in and be like, do the old fashioned sweat equity, build in some equity because they're not paying full price. So now they can go in and kind of customize and pick their own things. And, you know, generally, from what I can tell, the buyers that buy our properties in that perspective really like it. We also get some investor buyers that buy from cash flow just off the MLS. So mm -hmm. hey, there's nothing wrong with that, I guess. So it, it's a nice niche. We like it a lot. It makes a lot of sense in this kind of market. Yeah. And as an as a investor on your side, as long as you have the funding to close on the deals and kind of do the, the minor repairs or the, the, the repairs you're going to do and then have, have it on the market for a little bit of time, as long as you can fund that. It's a great space. I used to love doing hotels a lot. Yeah. Um, it, it's a great space to sort of sell in. The other thing right now, it's tough to get any, any repairs done. So if you're doing a big uh, renovation or rehab, getting crews on site, getting subs there, getting materials, all that stuff is kind of a hassle. So if you can, if you can minimize that mm -hmm. uh, expense in doing, you know, those big repairs, that's always a good thing, right? Cause you, you have the less time of, of labor on, on site, less materials, all that's going to be a benefit to you ultimately as a, as an investor for sure. Oh uh, yeah. hundred percent. And as you, as you increase your volume, I'm sure, as you know, too, maybe you have crews that are really good and really solid, but as you increase your volume, the capacity of those crews to handle those you know, more deals is not necessarily there. 
it's easy if you're a roofer, I suppose. I mean, you call your roofer and he does it sometime during the week because he's not really bumping into anything else. But the paint guys, the drywall guys, it's easy to sort of over outgrow that capacity issue. Um, I was just picking on a roofer. Actually, just this week we had a foundation delayed because foundation guy was, you know, backed up. So now he's doing it on Saturday instead of Tuesday. Like, you know, I mean, it's part of the business. But so there are risks and that's a whole tale house. There are risks, obviously, to it, but it does make it so you're not relying on, you know, your favorite tile guy that's going to get here Tuesday and he doesn't show up until Friday and then he doesn't get done until, you know, eight days later than you thought he was going to get done. What are some of the, I guess, uh, funding maybe is one of the issues, but what are some of the downsides to doing it that way in terms of just focusing your business in that wholesale sector? Yeah, absolutely. The So I think there's two, you mentioned funding. I think there's two probably broad categories now that I think about it of risks in that in that space. And they both stem from having to own the property. So there's an inherent risk, obviously, in owning a property that you don't know anything about. And the risks associated with that are kind of the same as with like a wholesale or flip really is don't overpay. So I see a lot of folks say, oh, this is a great, that's like when you see people put out, oh, it's a great rental, but that's because they just overpaid for it and they want to sell it to someone else who might want it for a rental. It's a horrible rental because by the time you do the math, it's full ARV. Well, I'd rather buy a rental property off the MLS because at least then I get an inspection time frame and can negotiate repairs maybe. So don't overpay. It's not a way to get a better deal. It's a way to get a better deal out of something that is a wholesale or a flip type of deal, I think in my experience, where maybe you get a higher profit margin, but it's not a way, I don't think, to make something that's an otherwise kind of shitty deal a deal. That's more a, a space for, I mean, no offense to shitty deals, but I think that's more of a space for like a seller finance or sub two kind of market where maybe there's inherently less room there. So now we have the financing that we can assume. So now we don't have the extra cost of getting new loans. You know, I think that's a good spot for that. But if you're strictly going to have to buy this thing and deal with it and own it yourself, then the biggest risk is just like anything else, don't overpay for it. There's always the risk of the unknowns on the renovation and, you know, still, still doing white renovations and the market risk, the biggest, the biggest kind of risk that I see people get into trouble with and where I've had some issues. And I, I don't mean issues catastrophically, but just minor issues is not really knowing what the buyer avatar is going to be for your property. Once, once you've taken it down and, and wholetailed it or listed it as is. So when, so the process, obviously we buy the, however we closed on, we'll talk about that in a minute, I guess. And we always clean it out. So we always take all the crap out. Our dumpster guy makes a lot of money off of us. We take honest pictures and we give an honest assessment on the MLS when we're listing it of what the property, you know, what it is. It's a handyman special. It's a sweat equity special. It's a not FHA financeable special. It is maybe a conventionally financeable special. So we target our buyer avatar and then say, okay, who's going to buy this property when we're done with it? Is it going to be a end buyer that's going to live here? Because the property is, you know, it's got functional toilets. It's got, we fixed the foundation. Maybe, maybe we restretched the carpet. You know, once in a while, we've even, we've put new carpet in, we've put new carpet in hotels too, because it costs us new carpet right next to freaking yellow vinyl kitchen tile, whatever. But it made sense, you know, for that kind of property. So, so we identify who the buyer is. Is the buyer going to be a retail end user buyer who wants some equity? Is, is it going to be a cash flow buyer that wants to rent this property and keep it in their portfolio? And those two buyers are generally pretty comparable in price points. Is it going to be an investor buyer who wants to resell the property? Because there are, believe it or not, still pe people that buy stuff off and renovate and resell. So, hey, good for them. Is it going to be, and then what level of investor buyer? Is it going to be a completely trashed, like just 
horrible house with missing subfloor, missing walls, missing all this other stuff, well, then there's more risk in the property. So the price has got to be lower. At the top end, at the best property, like a three bedroom, two bath, brick house, functioning toilets, functioning HVAC, kind of old and rattly. We tend to see a full ARV minus a reasonable repairs being the price point that sells well. And the repairs are always kind of a fluid thing. So maybe our assessment of a 50K rehab, maybe they think, you know, full ARV minus 30K is kind of where those properties tend to sell. The investor special properties uh, that are, you know, no toilets, no HVAC, just bad properties. They don't wholetail as well because there's more, there's more issues with the properties. So you don't have as big a buyer pool, even though the buyer pool is still the MLS, the actual number of buyers that want to buy that property. If, if you take out all the conventional buyers out there, well, you're taking out probably what 80% of the buyers in the market. So now you're definitely targeting a investor buyer. So then you have to understand, well, what's an investor buyer going to need on this property in order to make it work. And now you're getting more closer to a wholesale plus price. So wholesale plus maybe closing costs, plus an additional profit margin above a wholesale price is where we've noticed those deals tend to go. And those are the easiest ones to mess up because comps on, on a, like a, Comps on just a not great property are harder to come by and harder to exact exactify on a property by property basis. So those are the risks. You, you got to own the thing, <laughs> and right. there's there's risks of owning an asset. Yeah. So uh, you gave a lot of information there. I'm just going to try and uh, rewind a little bit of it and summarize. So the 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 risk is as a buyer of these types of properties, like you're doing, is that you may overpay because you think, Hey, I can, I can unload this at a higher price point. So right. I'm, I'm comfortable paying more, but the risk in doing that is like you said, you do have to acquire the property. You do have to fund that there's additional capital expense there and then holding it, all those sorts of things. And then, like you said, you don't know what the repairs are really ultimately going to be. Right. And then if you, if you haven't targeted your avatar perfectly, you know, you may end up having to do more repairs to get to that retail level homeowner type buyer than you would have to do with someone that's going to come in, like you said, and, and just do the minimum repairs and rent yeah. it out as a, as a rental property. Those two buyers, there could be a significant amount of not only price point, but repairs that are necess necessary to kind of make mm -hmm. that customer happy, right? Right. Absolutely. You can do less for the investor guy who's going to rent it than you can, than you can for the, the, the family that wants to move in there and doesn't need a perfect house, right? Sure. So if you don't know, if you haven't identified that exit strategy properly that can swing your your your, your profits quite a bit yeah 100 100 percent. it's I definitely is that okay oh no you i mean way more succinctly than i did i packed a lot of words around it yeah. but that, that's that's exactly right is identifying the buyer and also really screening the buyer i mean obviously you have to screen buyers if you're going to wholesale properties and if you're going to retail properties probably the screening process is the most straightforward on the retail market the screening process for the for the whole tail, the you know the the no rehab basically flip model that this is, is a little different. You you want to make sure the buyers understand that hey we're not we're not really offering repairs on this. So you can ideally there's no option period. But if you have a retail buyer, they still want an option period. Maybe they walk in and they think the AC works, and then their inspector comes in and oh the AC doesn't work. Next thing you know, you're probably putting in an AC because they need to get the financing. Um, so you try to you try to set the you try to frame the property as well as you can, and that's why I did allude. That's why I mentioned really we're honest and upfront throughout the entire thing. We're taking honest pictures with cell phones. We're not paying, you know, we're not photoshopping pictures and and it, it, you're not upping the contrast and making it look prettier. Because if you up the contrast, you see really how crappy that floor actually is. <laughs> you're taking right. you know cell phone pictures. You're being honest with the descriptions, 
And you definitely get a lot of agents that you get a lot of agents that either call ahead of time and say, oh, well, why is it, why is it priced like that? Like, I mean, did you read? And then you get agents after the fact, oh man, it, it needs a lot more work than I thought it did. So like, well, why'd you think it was priced the way it was? So it's, you know, you got to have thick skin because you get, you know, you get good agents that understand and they're like, okay, I understand what's, what's the pricing, you know, the pricing strategy here. I understand why this property is what it is. Let's get my client in here, show it to them. And you get other agents that are like, oh man, there's a screaming deal. Oh, and they get out there. It's like, oh man, this needs a lot of work. I'm like, well, yeah, we said it needed a lot of work. It's not, not my fault. You can't read. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think it's essentially understanding that avatar that you're going after, like you said, to begin with, when you're in the buying process of that property is, is a critical thing. That was kind of always the thing I, I did first was who, who is, who is going to, end up with this property, right? When in my mind, when I was looking at it to buy the property, I was thinking, who am I selling this to? And like you said, there's really, there's, there's really like three avatars on that end user at that, at that hotel price point. And, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of quantify who it's going to, and then back factor what you can pay for the property. And that's where you run. That's what I was saying, where you run the risk. Like you said, if you pick the wrong avatar, you know, it can change everything on your exit and change your profits for sure. So I think yeah. that that's a good place to start. If anybody's wanting to do this, that wholetail market style that you're doing, I think really understanding who you're selling to and those three buyers that you listed, what their needs are and what their expectations are and what you can price those things at, that's really going to be a, a critical part of, of doing that business that way. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent, hundred percent. It's where people bump into the most, most issues on the property is not understanding who their property is going to appeal to. It's, it's honestly, it's, it's more sophisticated, no offense, than wholesalers or retail. Because retail, if you're doing a flip, all of our flips, like I said, they all look exactly the same. But that's because, you know, we blow them out. We do pretty much everything. Right. And, then, and then the only question is, you know, what, what aspect of a full blown out scope do we, can we maybe get away with not having to do in this neighborhood? Can we not scrape popcorn ceilings? You know, three years ago, probably not. Right now, and it's a super hot market. Yeah, maybe. So maybe that's off the scope. So we can deduct that stuff from a retail flip scope wise. But it's a different it's a different mindset when you're looking at this wholesale thing because then you're taking you're taking it from the asset from the property perspective, being like, well, what makes sense for this property versus the flip perspective? You're kind of taking, well, what can I get away with with not having to do on this property? Or hey, if we want to hit the top 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 price point, then we have to do everything. So let's figure out how to do that. And what does everything even entail? Does everything entail, you know, a new HVAC or a new roof, like I just said on the one we just sold, or does everything entail, Hey, the HVAC and the roof are fine for this price point. Yeah. When I was looking at my retail properties, I would always look at, there's two, two things I would look at. So what, what is going to be on the inspection report? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the first thing I was concerned about. So your mechanicals, all that sort of thing, what's going to pass inspection and what isn't. And what isn't going to pass inspection has to be dealt with. And then the second thing I would look at is what is the market standard, right? So what is, what is the neighborhood drivers for amenities in those particular properties that are getting that maximum retail? And if yeah. everybody's selling hardwoods and granite and stainless appliances, then you have to do that same thing, right? 100%. So retail is almost an easier, you know, it's easier to kind yeah. of mentally equate because you're just, you're, you're doing what's, what's set in the neighborhood and what's set yes. in the inspection reports. And then wholesaling is even, like you said, it's even easier because you're just buying it and, and turning it around as is, right? So mm -hmm. there's really nothing done at all in those situations. Well, and with wholesale, if you, if you miss, you know, you know, you know, as you're trying to show it to other folks, like you get 10, 10 buyers in there and all 10 of them say, dude, I need to be here. And 
you know, here is 5k less than you're getting it for, then, you know, you know, you missed when you bought it. Like that's an easy, that's, right. that's an immediate affirmation as to how correct you are on the process versus, you know, if you are low on wholesale and you're showing it to 10 different people, you know, three of them are going to be bidding it up for you. So it, that's an immediate response rate. So it doesn't take a lot of really specific market knowledge to be a mediocre wholesaler. Now, obviously it takes a lot of market knowledge and a lot of marketing skills to be a really good wholesaler. But, you know, most people don't start out there. They usually start off kind of mediocre and then work their way up. Whereas wholesaling, I think, is the easiest way to really screw it up if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I think so, too. I think you're right in that. And I think, I think, like you said, doing your market research, understanding your market, understanding your avatar, I think those are going to be important for anybody that's doing that, that level business. Absolutely. Because you know, like you said, in, in the wholesale game, if you do hit it wrong, you're, you're generally under, you're under contract. So you can go back and either renegotiate or discuss it with the seller. You know, or ultimately, I guess you have the termination option too, in some cases. So I, I think in wholesaling, you kind of have some, some ways to, to deal with that. If you, when you're wholesaling, you're going to buy that thing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's your money out there, or your investor's yeah. money or whatever. So it's, it's a different risk level. Absolutely. Um, but yes. Yeah, so I think market research, what you're doing in terms of like, like you said, we, when you look at Arlington and you figure out what, it, what exactly in Arlington it's, is working and we're not working for that particular market segment. I think that's. Mm -hmm. That's important for sure. It also, you know, the same as with the wholesale price in, you know, what a wholesale in Arlington might be different than what would wholesale in, if you were in a, like a Cincinnati market or something like that, or even a California market, if you have the capacity to hit something down in Southern California, where I'm from right now, that's, that's probably a very, very competitive wholesale market where we'd yeah. have closer to full ARV prices than we do in, in Dallas and Texas here. So it, it really is important to know your kind of macro sub market like your city, what's going on in the city, what makes sense here. And then definitely the micro, more defined sub-market. Like I like to say, you know, comps are comps until they're not a comp. So make sure if you're looking at, oh, it's a three-bedroom, two-bath house, like with with Wholetail, definitely it's a three-bedroom, two-bath house. You know, is there a busy road? Is there, what are the dividing lines? It's a lot more important to have that like exacting in this in this model, I think. What are some of the tools that you recommend people use to do that? Are, are there, are there, I know MLS is obviously uh, here in Dallas for sure. MLS is obviously the most accurate, the most data, but are you, are you using other tools to kind of figure out what your valuations are and what your amenities are going to have to look like? And, and what, what are you using to do that market research? Yeah, I, I think the MLS is probably the best option realistically where, where you bump into, you know, with some of our mastermind, like mastermind attendees and stuff where they bump into stuff is where there's more of a rural market. We've wholetailed some stuff in Waco. We wholetailed some stuff in, we wholetailed some stuff in a town I've never even heard of before. So that's when it gets a little bit squishier. Um, you got, you got to do more homework. So there's the big ones, obviously in Texas. I know Propelio still does pretty decent on Texas statewide comps. I prop stream does comps. So we use that in the office. We use batch comps sometimes, batch lead comps sometimes when we're looking at deals that are outside of our, like outside of where our MLS access is. In DFW, in the big market here, we definitely just mostly rely on MLS. And then we rely on an understanding of like the property itself. So the best knowledge base probably to have if, for a wholesale strategy is, is the pricing on what needs to get repaired and what doesn't need to get repaired. So a lot of people know foundation's a big issue in Dallas, I guess all throughout Texas, really. So knowing even pricing on foundation repairs, if you're going to sell to an end retail buyer is huge. Just knowing, kind of having a ballpark of that. Okay, well, foundation, maybe 5K on this house, maybe 7K on this house. I actually, we missed we missed on one recently. We were going to wholetail it. We didn't get a chance to do a whole lot of due diligence. And the foundation came back at $9,000. And then 
a bunch of other stuff, like not really popped up, but like we kind of went in there and looked at the numbers on the house. Like, well, you know, let's eh, screw that. Let's flip it because did the foundation. Now we're cracking a bunch of walls, popping out a bunch of drywall, have a lot more drywall issues, which is to be expected, but also didn't expect to, you know, have that much foundation. So now we're, now we're going to flip that property instead. So the, uh, the biggest hedge against risk on any one of these strategies is just buy it right. So we always, we always, we always focused on that as the main objective in the company is if you buy it right, where it is a wholesaleable property, then these other exit strategies are kind of profit maximization strategies. They're not necessarily, you know, bail, bail out, and like fix a mistake right. strategies. Don't make a mistake is the best way to not, <laughs> to, right, not right. to not lose money. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit on you. So, you know, the, the podcast is uh, called Next Little American Dream. And I ask all of our guests this. And, and so I, what does the American dream mean to you, TJ? Well, let's see. I just had a second kid on Monday. So today, yeah. for anyone listening to the podcast recording or whatever, this is Thursday. So Monday afternoon, we went into the hospital at 8.30, I think. And by yeah. 2.40, we had a, had a new baby. So that's number two. So what, what everyone likes saying, they all like saying, I'm building a legacy for all this generational wealth and all this other stuff. I don't buy it. Like I don't buy that as being the legacy. The legacy that I, I buy is in, because the next generation screws it up if you don't give them the skills to, to do it and to, opt, to, to take it and kind of run with it, they screw it up. So I, I don't buy a financial legacy. I think it's a, a nice bonus if you're able to do it. I buy into the memory legacy and the making an impact legacy. And I don't think you do that necessarily by maximizing your profit and focusing exclusively on how much money you're making, making money realistically, it's relatively straightforward. You find a process that works for you and you do it a whole bunch of times and you become successful and then you get bored with it. So then you do something else. And then eventually you figure out, you know, the actual fun part of all that stuff was uh, the experiences with the people was in building the team or in coaching someone that else that wants to, you know, a, wants to make their life better. Or, you know, you'd look down at your brand new baby and be like, man, if I screw this up, this guy's screwed, not me. So building these life skills, I think is, is my goal for the kind of American dream. I realized it when kind of a little, maybe a little off topic, but I realized that actually when my mom died three years ago, she died while my wife was pregnant with our first baby. And she, you know, at 24, you don't buy a bunch of apartments without raising money from friends and family. And for years, she told me that her favorite part of that whole experience was in going back and dealing with the subcontractors, dealing, I was basically in charge of the project, but she was, you know, dealing with the bookkeeping, dealing with the project managers. We had a pretty good size operation going from 2000, basically six to, to I think 10, maybe 11, six to 11. When we sold the when we sold the second one, and she told me for years, like I had so much fun doing that. The money's not important. It was cool, and I thought she was absolutely nuts. Like, mom, I've had fun. Like, I've traveled. I've done fun things. That's not fun. And she said for years, no, I had so much fun. And then it finally took her dying on me to to switch gears in my mind and be like, you know, I spent all this kind of fun time, like stressed out, like but doing all the stuff that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do. And that's the memory that's more important because the money's just. The money's just, it's not even scorekeeping. The money's just a, a means to have a lifestyle that you want to have. So that's, that's my goal is let's see if we can impact some folks. You know, we're not trying, trying to change the world because 
that's that's a stupid goal. I think we're trying to you know make people's lives a little bit better by helping them out. And I think if we translate that to the next generation, then that's where you, that's where you actually make a difference. People that go set out to change the world, they never do it because that's their goal. Our goal is, you know, let's let's impact some lives incrementally and make things a little bit better that way. Yeah. So the the experience that she had having fun working with you and taking on these large projects and these challenges, so she enjoyed that so much that that repositioned how you thought about you how you want to spend your time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so now you focus more on spending time with your family. And then now you're, you're doing coaching and, and outreach to other investors to help them build their business and do their mm -hmm. thing as well. So, yeah, that's really good. Well, TJ, so how can people kind of reach out to you if they want to, if they want to take, take you and, and figure out what you have going on and, and get some coaching or, or get some help from you or whatever? Is there a way people can reach out to you, go to a website or something like that? Love to, love to talk to anyone, anyone that wants. Well, I made it, yeah, I'll put it out there. We offer, we actually offer a quick coaching call just for fun. You can sign up at tjcozen.com and there's some more information, you know, just kind of about us on there as well. And then okay. I'm, I'm super easy to find on Facebook, all over the local DFW kind of groups, but you can look tjcozen.com. Send me a friend request because once you cap out, you delete a bunch of people that aren't interacting and add more people. Send me a message though, if you have any actual questions, because if you just get a friend request, you tend to ignore it. Same thing with Instagram on Instagram. I've actually bought deals off of Instagram by posting stuff. So I've had people hit me up like, hey, I got this deal. What do you think? Super approachable. You can always email me, tjkosen, K-O-S-E-N at gmail.com. And, you know, totally get back to folks. Would love to interact. Would love to help anyone with pieces of their business that maybe they're not, not good at. We didn't talk a lot about marketing. We didn't talk a lot about operations. We didn't talk a lot about kind of team building. But those are all, once you get the transactional engineering aspect down, that's the next step. That's it's really kind of the fun part of building the whole process. Yeah, you start building out your, your systems and stuff. Absolutely. So just yeah, they'll check out your website. Uh, reach out to you on Facebook. Those are those are great ways to get in touch with you. That'd be Perfect. good. And uh, and then you can help them kind of tailor that hotelling model or or really kind of any of the the single family business stuff that they may need help with. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Would love to. Well, good. Well, thanks for being on the show, TJ. I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll we'll okay. have you we'll have you come back on sometime and down the road and, and and check in with you when you know and see how the babies are growing up and stuff. <laughs> Fantastic! Thanks so much, Sean. I yeah. really I really appreciate you having me. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Next Level American Dream. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, want to contact the team directly, or are interested in passively investing and being a part of our deal room, head over to our website at www.thompsonmultifamilygroup.com. Before you go, please leave a review. Your comments help us create more episodes for you to enjoy.